Welcome to a podcast about wealth and life. We all know that our finances play a big part in how we live our lives. In this podcast, the advisors from Foster and Motley share insights and information about investment and financial planning topics and how they connect to your life. Cybersecurity. Can we talk enough about this? Well, unfortunately, no. You can't be too careful with your personal and financial information. Foster and Motley's Joe Patterson has some suggestions I encourage you to seriously consider. I'm Patrice Sakura. Joe, this is a topic that really cannot be stressed enough. Yeah, it feels, I feel like a broken record talking about some of these items, but they are potentially so preventative to major disruptions in your life that we don't think we can talk about them enough. So we wanted to revisit this topic because it's it remains important. We continue to read and hear stories of folks and companies being compromised and having their financial data compromised. So, you know, as we head into the fourth quarter, head into the holidays, this is the last thing you want to deal with, a disruption that causes you time and energy and, and takes your focus away from the things that are important in life. And I mean, think about it this way too, a little bit of effort in the front at the front end avoids all the problems that can really be long lasting. Yeah, absolutely. Wise words, Patrice, and they can be applied to many things, including keeping yourself safe and protecting your financial data. So there's a few things I want to touch on. This list isn't meant to be exhaustive, but it is important. And as you said, most of these don't require a lot of time and energy. Some require very little time and energy. Some are free. So so why not take these steps and avoid these nasty potential outcomes with your financial data? So first, we will talk about it. We've talked about it with our clients. We've talked about it on here more than once. Please freeze your credit. So what does that mean? If you go to buy a car and you need a loan for that car, you said, hey, I'm going to take out a loan. I'm going to go buy a new car. The car dealer... You know, the finance department will run your credit. They will contact one of the major credit bureaus. Typically, it's Equifax, TransUnion, or Experian. Uh, there is a fourth credit bureau called Innovus that folks aren't as familiar with. Hmm. And they will say, hey, is Joe creditworthy based on the information those credit bureaus contain about me and my credit history? I'm confident they'll say yes. But then they come back, I get the loan, we move about our day. That's a common use case for accessing your credit. Uh, but beyond that, if you're not going to get a loan or getting a new credit card, accessing new credit in some form, which again, most commonly is a loan or a credit card, then there's no need for me or anybody to access my credit other than those instances. So if my credit is frozen, which it in fact is, that same scenario plays out the finance department goes to Equifax and says, hey, we want to check on Joe. We've got a social security number and his authorization to do so. It, they will come back and say, sorry, Joe's credit can't mm -hmm. be accessed right. because it's frozen. So why would I want that to be the standard for my credit and your credit and everybody's credit? Well, a bad actor who is able to convince a bank or any lending institution that they are, in fact, Joe Patterson from Cincinnati with my social security number could, in fact, take out a loan under my name, under my social security number, creates a permanent record on my credit right. with these agencies. And then I have 
what is undeniably a mess. This is different than if you go and send your credit card through a skimmer at the gas station and someone buys a TV in Tennessee two hours later. That's credit card fraud. But that's also part of doing business for the major credit card operators. And you call them up and say, hey, by the way, I am not in the middle of Tennessee at a Best Buy buying big screen TVs. Please erase this charge. No harm, no foul. It doesn't even touch my credit. But this situation I'm describing does absolutely touch your credit. And it is a major hassle from a time and a financial perspective to get fixed. So this credit freeze, which happens to be free, and I know we're going to post a link in the notes to this podcast, you can knock out freezing of all your credit probably in an hour, maybe less, if you're comfortable navigating online access on a computer. And it's the best way to prevent against credit, against personal fraud, not credit card fraud, mm-hmm. but the fraud we're talking about, which again is much harder to fix. It's much more costly potentially to you. It isn't easy to go and say to TransUnion, hey, fix my credit record. It's not, it's much more complicated than that. So uh, this is, if you did one thing today, I hope you do more than one, but if you did one, <laughs> I would do this one because it's free, it's quick, and it is very, very effective. And I just want to add too, you freeze your credit and then you go looking for that car. You can easily unfreeze your credit for a limited amount of time so that you can get that loan and then bingo, freeze it again. Yeah, that's a great point, Patrice. And we call that a credit thaw. And in my example that we're using to buy a car, I will go and ask the finance department, hey, where are you going to run my credit? I'll pop online. I'll thaw it at that agency because they usually just hit one of the major agencies. They don't usually run it at more than one. Um, They will do that if you are buying a house and applying for a mortgage. They often will hit more than one agency, but usually with buying a car, they'll just go to one and I'll thaw it. You can elect how long to keep it open. Usually a business day or two is fine. And then it'll automatically refreeze. Fantastic. All right. Number two. Number two, password strength and security. Oh, passwords. Passwords. Yes. So the days of... Let's use the same password for 37 websites. We don't like that. If you were going to use the same password for 37 websites, which we don't recommend, it would be really great if you used a long one with a bunch of different characters, symbols, numbers, lowercase, uppercase. So what's long? Well, let me let me back up and say what is not long. If you think about the tools that hackers use, it's not just people in a room. It's people in a room with computers that might take up yes. an entire house. Yes. So they're using what's called brute force computing strength to basically employ machine learning to hack passwords. So if you have, for example, a six-character password, that could be cracked within seconds, minutes, by someone who knows what they're doing. Just because it's a math game here, right? There's only so many ways you can combine six characters, even if you have uppercase, lowercase, numbers, uh, Mm -hmm. symbols, all those. With every one of these, there's a finite number of combinations. However, the list of finite combinations grows and grows with each additional character. So an 18-character password using the same mix of uppercase, lowercase, numbers, symbols would take 
somewhere on the order of trillions of years for someone with this same technology to crack. So that obviously the likelihood of that being cracked is exceptionally low. What's the takeaway? The takeaway is longer passwords give you exponentially better results, meaning no one's going to figure out a way using computer technology to guess your password. How do I keep track of that password? That is the key. That is the key, right? So some people like myself, like our firm, use a password manager. Now you got one, you got to have one password you remember, right? But I know that every site that I utilize now, I have a different password. It's, I think my default is 16 or 17. I'm not using the 18, using 16 or 17. Some places, by the way, cap you on the upper end of the limit, meaning they won't let you use a 16 or 17. They might say, well, you can't be more than 14 or but they often also say you can't be less than a certain number. And that's right. really more important. So my password manager remembers all of my passwords. They're gobbledygook, right? Some random combination that the software generates of letters, numbers, symbols, uppercase, lowercase. So I feel good about the strength of those passwords because I didn't generate them. They are randomly generated. They're stored in this software. I do have to remember a password. That password should be strong, but memorable. So that allows you to get in the good practice of having really excellent passwords for sites, particularly sites that that allow you to transact financial money movements. We use Schwab as our custodian. So myself and our clients have a Schwab access. Well, you can move money in Schwab, your bank account, where you link your checking and your savings. Those give opportunities for you to initiate transfers of funds to institutions outside of your bank. So those are you know, kind of at the top of the list, but also if you think about folks and shopping habits and, you know, I get more Amazon packages at my front porch than I care to admit, probably many people feel the same way, Oh yeah, oh yeah. but my credit cards are stored in Amazon because they feed my Amazon shopping habits. So that means I should have a good password, right? Because I have storing credit information with these sites. So all that to say, have good passwords, which is longer passwords with a combination of uppercase, lowercase numbers and symbols and highly recommend consider using a password manager to help you manage all that because it is a lot to keep track of and having the same password for every website, even if it's a great one, isn't the best practice. Joe, how do you feel about saving the passwords on your computer? You know, the little box comes up, says, remember this, don't remember this. Yeah, that's another opportunity for compromise. Mm -hmm. So in theory, if you're using Chrome, Chrome is using some sort of encryption to store those, but it's not the same as a dedicated password manager. So if you just think about more opportunities for something not good to happen, right? If I have it stored in my browser, that's one more place where someone who is a bad actor can get a hold of it. There's sort of a fairly specific but not impossible case where I click on a bad link and someone employs some malware to take over yes. my computer and then shoot, you know, I've got all my passwords stored in Chrome and they can start popping on websites in Chrome on my computer and I've stored the passwords. So so recommend not doing that. Many of the big password managers have tools that 
again, you have to log in, but when you're on your browser, you can log in. And then when you pop onto a new site that requires login credentials, the password manager will fill those at your direction on the login page. So that, that works well and functions in a similar way. It's just more secure because it's not storing in your browser. Whenever you turn your computer off, turn it back on, it's going to ask you to log back in, which on the one hand is annoying, but on the other hand is much better than if, again, someone got a hold of your computer and was all of a sudden granted access to a bunch of your websites where you can transact uh, financial money movements, get data, all those other sorts of things you don't want someone else to have. This brings us right into paying your bills online. How about that? Yeah, so I think as online bill pay has become more and more of an option. Initially, there was concern among many users, and it wasn't entirely unfounded that, well, I don't want all my information floating around online because that's just a chance for people to steal it. And that is true to a point. And there are plenty of stories of people getting hacked and, again, bad actors using data to, to move money, to buy things, to do stuff that is fraudulent. But we have seen lately a lot of the most, I'll call it nasty, fraud cases that are happening, the sort of reverted and gone back old school. And there's been a lot of stories in the news here locally and nationally about old school, steal a check out of a mailbox right. and do something with that check that is fraudulent, either washing the check, which is what it sounds like, right? Using chemicals mm -hmm. to basically clean the ink off um, or taking that check, creating a new check with a check number that is far enough ahead in the line of sequence in your check numbers that, you know, you probably haven't used it yet. And so it'll clear. Uh, but in those cases, you find out when in some instances, a very large check clears your bank account or your brokerage account, if you have the ability to write checks against your brokerage account. So we're actually discouraging our clients and people we know from making check payments, particularly through the mail, right? Because of this very situation that's sort of, again, it's counter to what many people have been thinking, but if you are using online bill pay, either with your institution sending bills out and or linking your, let's say your credit card account to your checking account, if you are employing good security habits, right? Which is good passwords, making sure that you're using different passwords for different websites. I haven't mentioned this yet, but two-factor authentication. Right. I think you got to think of that as just not optional for any of these types of sites. So two-factor is simply just another another safeguard when you log in. Oftentimes, it's a text message to your phone. You can use authenticator apps. Many different companies, Microsoft included, offer authenticator apps, which may make you open your phone and open the app, and then it sends a, a note to the app. Uh, that's arguably even more secure than the text message. But all of that to say that if someone somehow found your password and you have two-factor set up and they don't have the second factor, then they are again stuck. So all this is be as cautious as you can. The modest inconveniences are worth it to avoid right. what is a fairly nasty and time-consuming event. So I suppose it really comes down to just you've got to set up these habits, good security habits, and you've got to follow them. Yeah, absolutely. So 
you know, habits are passwords. We've talked about two-factor authentication. We've talked about online bill pay. We've talked about the strength of your passwords. How do I keep track of all this, right? But there's also some additional, what we call good security habits that are all linked to this, right? So scam emails. Oh, yeah. We have really good, fairly well-tuned spam email software here at work, but there's still emails that get through and they're becoming, I say they, scammers, are becoming really good at making them look legitimate. Some still look kind of eh, iffy and you know right away, but some don't. Some look really good. And if they're lucky, they will have sent you an email that sort of looks like something you get regularly or were expecting. So we cannot put this in large enough capital letters. Do not click on a link if you don't know where it's from. Right. Do not click on a link if you don't know where it's from. That's the that's still the most common way that organizations and individuals are getting hacked is you click on a bad link. So how do I not click on a bad link? Uh, be be overly cautious. When in doubt, don't click on it, right? You If you get an email from that looks like it's from Microsoft, but you think it's not from Microsoft, well, or a bank or wherever, some institution you transact business with or you have a subscription with, it is very easy to delete the email and go log into the website, right? So if I get an email from my mortgage provider, you got to approve this or you have a new document, like, well, I can just go log into the to the site directly. And if I have that new document, it'll be there. And if it was fraud, then I'll know right. it was fraud. You can actually hover over a link in an email. So you can, of course, title a hyperlink, whatever you want it to be, right? Click here. You can actually title it as a real website, but hyperlink it to a fraudulent website. So little things like that, hover over the link. If it says it's microsoft.com and it's actually some mess of characters or a site you never heard of, well, then you probably shouldn't click on it. And that's very key. Look at the address. Where is it going? Is it spelled correctly? It may at first glance look, look like it says, oh, Microsoft, but look at it. It may say Microsoft or something like that. Exactly. Yeah. So so scammers are taking advantage of people having busy lives and having a lot to do. I know when I get off this call, I probably got 10 emails waiting for me. So if they can slip in there and email eight of 10 is is a scam email that looks decent. They're hoping I'm going to click on it thoughtlessly, right? So it's hard to slow down, but this is a really good reason to slow down when it comes to your personal data. The other thing I, I should mention, because this, this is also unfortunately still a problem, is there's a lot of phone scams that mm-hmm. still go on and they go on because they work enough times that it's still profitable for the for scammers to do it. So if someone calls you on the phone and says you owe money, it's almost assuredly a scam, right? So again, we're talking about the element of you're busy, you're not thinking about something. If you get a call from somebody who sounds like they are legitimate and you kind of, there's an element of surprise to it, right? You're not expecting it, but you know, you don't want to, you don't want there to be a problem. So if you owe money somewhere, then I guess I guess I got to pay it, right? One example is Social Security will never call you, right? But scammers still call pretending to be Social Security and asking for sensitive data right. from people. And unfortunately, in that case, they're picking on senior citizens because they know they're good targets for scams. So Social Security, they'll send a letter. 
most businesses, banks, agencies, they'll send a letter if there's an issue that you need to address because that's how they do business. They don't call you on the phone. So it's not online, but it is relevant. And particularly when we're thinking about you know, our loved ones and our older loved ones, they're the ones who are most likely to be targeted for these scams. And any way we can help protect them, uh, we should do so. One thing I've noticed with the phone scams, and I have gotten a few calls in the past and whatever, but they're rude. They're very rude and they're pushy. And if it were a legitimate call, you would expect the individual to be more polite. Yeah. And and they're rude and pushy on purpose Yes, because it throws you off. And so when you're thrown off that they're, you know, I don't want to get too deep here, but you know, they're instigating a, a fight or flight yeah. response. And it's like, oh, you know, like I, I better deal with this. I can't have this problem be outstanding. I'm a a good upstanding person. I might keep my finances in order. And if there's a problem, I want to fix it. So, so they're relying on all these psychological tricks to hopefully bait somebody into sending them some money or some information somewhere um, that they can, of course, you know, do something fraudulent with. So all of this comes back to habits. And as you mentioned at the top of the call, Patrice, Many of these habits don't take a lot of time on the front end, uh, but they do prevent a lot of aggravation right. in the form of time and money potentially on the back end. So um, like I said, if you only do one, freeze your credit, but we'd love to see you tick off those four, freeze your credit, focus on your password strength, which includes two-factor authentication, pay your bills online if possible. Oh, I did want to mention one thing. You don't have to store credit card information on your websites. I'm self-indicting here because like I said, I store mine at Amazon. Um, <laughs> but you don't have to do that, right? If you are concerned, because it's in the news a lot, that your credit card information is going to get hacked because these major institutions somewhat regularly seem to get hacked, uh, you don't have to store it online, at least on shopping sites. Now, if you are doing online bill pay, like you know, Verizon or T-Mobile, they'll want you to store your web, your information online. But for the most part, if it's, you know, Amazon's a good example, REI, if I'm going to go buy something on REI's website, I, I can, but I don't have to store my credit card data there. So that's another kind of extra level of security. If you're very concerned about the online bill paying, you know, enter your credit card each time and don't, and say, no, thanks. I don't want you to store the information online. And then the final piece is it's kind of summarizes all this, but practice those good habits, check the links in the emails, be suspicious of phone calls that don't sound right. If they don't sound right, they probably aren't right. And to your point, you know, if you get somebody who's aggressively asking you for information, hang it up and they'll probably move on their way and move on to the next number on the list. Yeah. Joe, lots and lots of good stuff here. How can listeners reach you if they've got questions? Yeah, sure. You can find us uh, anytime online, uh, www.fosterandmotley, foster, A-N-D-M-O-T-L-E-Y.com. Uh, you can also call us directly here, 1-800-532-2962. Make sure you follow or subscribe this podcast, Foster and Motley's podcast about wealth and life, for more timely insights into life's financial questions, too. And yeah, share it with others. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for listening to Foster and Motley, a podcast about wealth and life. 
Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information discussed and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of Foster and Motley. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional financial advice. Keep in mind that rules and regulations are subject to change. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions regarding your financial planning and investments. Foster & Motley is not affiliated with any third-party providers. Any mention of a third-party provider does not imply an endorsement of that provider. If you decide to utilize a third-party provider, you do so at your own risk.